0: This morning, our scripture reading is going to come from 1 Samuel. We're reading 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one who I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked upon Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed one is now before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look upon outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Adadam, And made him pass before Samuel. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammai pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven sons pass before Samuel. And and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? He said, there remains the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him for he is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, it's interesting how I've seen God be at work in this series we're, we're preaching right now about how Scripture all fits together, how I've seen God kind of bring some, some cool stuff with other things I'm doing kind of together. You know, last week we talked about the law, which well, just so happens that Wednesday I'm starting a Wednesday Night Live class on the Ten Commandments, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, today we, uh, we're, we're, we're lo- looking at the history and the wisdom literature. And within that, we see the story of David. And David, as we unpack history and wisdom, David's going to kind of be the ideal person within this, because we see last week we talked about: the covenant community formed by the law, and the covenant community is defined by its worship and by its holiness. And that's what we're going to see. we see those two things worship and holiness as kind of then brought together with a sign of, of circumcision, kind of as the boundaries and the de- definitions of the covenant community, and then what that means to us. Well, today, we're seeing what the covenant community looks like moving forward with the history and the wisdom, and in many ways, David is kind of the um, template of this. He's kind of the main person that kind of exemplifies the history of Israel as well as the wisdom of of Israel. And so he's kind of that that template, that main person, and we're going to unpack that. But one of the things that we see over and over and over again with David is the power of experiencing God. We see in David someone who has truly experienced the power and the grace of God and y'all once you've experienced that power and that grace of God in a mighty way there's nothing like it all of us every one of us here in our life at some point has experienced God's goodness in some way and i don't know what that way looks like for you but in your life there there has to at least have been have been one moment at least one moment where you felt God move in your life in a powerful way. Maybe, maybe it was a moment where you experienced God's love or God's forgiveness. So the way it all kind of dovetails is, for me, one of those moments was when I went through the walk to Emmaus. You know, we, we mentioned the happening for our students soon. But I, I can tell you, for me, that weekend of Emmaus... You know, was something that changed my life. It, it is not too big of a statement to say that things like Emmaus or Cursillo are literally life-changing events. I, I didn't want to, when I, when I went to the walk to Emmaus, I did not want to go because I'm hard-headed and stupid, and the surest way to not get me to do something is to tell me that I've got to do it. And the more you tell me I have to do it, the, the less likely I am to do it, and I will simply not do it just because you want me to do it. Well, my home church was an Emmaus church, and everybody at Johnson Chapel did Emmaus. They're like, you need to do it. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. My best friend in seminary and in, in, in ministry for most of my ministry, his parents ran the campground in Grenada where North Mississippi did Emmaus. He's like, you got to do it. I'm like, I'm not doing it. Then I went to pedal, and my church down there was a huge Emmaus community, and half the board of directors for the South Mississippi Board for Emmaus went to my church. They're like, you got to do it. I'm like, I told you I'm not doing it. And the more you ask me to do it, the less likely I am to do it. Till finally, one of the guys said, you're doing it, because he was as hard-headed as I was. You're doing it. I've already paid your way, and he's preaching for you next Sunday, so shut up and go. I shut up and went, and it was without a doubt one of the greatest experiences of my life, where I felt God's love and mercy Frankly, in a way that I've never felt it before. And frankly, that I haven't really felt that much since. Only I mean, like that, that powerful. It was awesome. And so here's your homework. You've at some point, this is something Dr. Nick told us in seminary. At some point, you felt that at least once in your life. At once in your life, you have felt that. Felt God's mercy, felt God's grace, or felt God use you in some way. After service today, I want you to go home and get out a piece of paper and write that down. Write down that time when God has moved in your life or you've experienced God or God has used you. Write it down. It doesn't have to be long. Just write it down. Fill it up. Put it in your Bible. Or get your phone out. Put it in your notes app and put it there. Write that down. Because there's going to come a time in your life when you don't think God loves you. There's going to come a time in your life when you think you've done too much where God can't possibly love you or there's going to come a time in your life when you think God can't use you. You think God's done with you. That's you got to pull out that piece of paper or open up that app and remember. Remember that God has chosen you and God uses you. The devil wants us to forget those moments but we can't forget them. Because once we've tasted God's goodness in that way, there's no, nothing's ever the same. We see in David that example. That's why David's such an example. We saw so last week the formation of this community as defined by worship and holiness and given the sign of covenant. And then today we're looking at the history and we're looking at the wisdom literature, and we're going to see how God uses these types of literature. The history, the, his, the books of history, are simply that—they are books of history. Uh, remember, I told you you can bring your Bible. We're looking, the next few weeks we'll be looking at a lot of books, so uh, you might want to bring your Bible with you so you can document what we're talking about. But today, we start the history books. are start start with Joshua. Joshua is the story of the conquest of the people going from the River Jordan in the east all the way through the Promised Land. Remember the covenant last week? We talked about how God said, I will give you this land. Joshua is the story of the people getting the conquest. Something really cool about Joshua, though, is Joshua is that story. And it's interesting archaeologically. um, One of the things that people used to use back in the 1700s and 1800s, to discount scripture, was in Joshua, you'd see the people moving, and they would... Att- they, would, they would fight with the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Termites, all the Ites. They'd fight with all of them. And people would say, Oh, there's no evidence of the Jebusites and the Termites. Well, archaeologically, we now have found all these tribes that are mentioned in Joshua did exist. And what's interesting, we can actually trace in the Holy Land the conquest. Because when the Israelites would attack a town, they would go into that town, they would find their idol, and they would desecrate their idols. They would vandalize it. There would be Jewish vandalism. And you can see a trail of vandalism moving from east to west as the people conquered the land. So Joshua's the story of the conquest. And then, Judges is after Joshua dies, and they, instead of one central ruler, they had a bunch of, they, they had this cycle of they'd be free, then they'd sin, they'd fall into slavery, then they'd repent, then they'd be free, then they'd sin, they'd fall into slavery, then they'd, fr- then they'd repent, and it's a cycle of sin and repentance and slavery and freedom over and over and over and over again in Judges with different leaders rising up to free them. Then you have, starting in, um, then uh, Ruth is a story of redemption in that same time period. Ruth becomes one of the, in the line of David. Then you have Samuel, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. That's the story of David rising up and becoming eventually the king of Israel. We see Saul, then David, then Solomon, and then we see the kingdom divided. Eventually the kingdom is divided and it's defeated and destroyed, and the people go into exile. Well, Samuel, kings and chronicles are the story of Israel's rising with David and, so- and Solomon and then its eventual destruction and taking them to exile. Then you see Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther are about the time frame when the people are in exile in Babylon, and they're eventually freed in return. So we see the heights. Of the people as they're faithful to their lows to where they're destroyed and defeated. We see it. it, This is historical nature. The, The histories are simply that they are historical tellings of the people's experience in the promised land. But then after that, we get to the wisdom, Psalms, well, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Job is a powerful book of suffering. We see Job might be the oldest story in the Bible outside the creation account. And we learn from Job that all humans will suffer. You know, one of my professors used to always say, you should always read Job in tandem with Proverbs. Because Proverbs tells you this. Work hard, do right, keep your nose clean, go to bed early, you'll be just fine. And Job says, not so much. Because look at why did Job suffer? Well, because he was wicked or evil or did anything wrong. That fact, he suffered because he was a good guy. Job tells us suffering comes to all of us, that there's not a human life that will not suffer. Psalms is a book of huh, emotion and of praise. I-, I love, I love, we talk about David, he wrote so many of the Psalms. I think, I think we see that, remember that, moment, that experience that David had when he was anointed. When he experienced God and the Spirit of God fell upon him, we see that play out in Psalms. We see we see the Psalms like we read at 150. Worship the King. Let all that has breath praise God. Worship God. We see this, this outpouring of worship and emotion that is beautiful. But then Friday in my personal re- my daily reflections, I am reading Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is, y'all, David's like, oh, that I could fly away. Oh, that I could die. Oh, if I could get away from these people. And I read that, I'm like... Man, David's depressed. Yeah. I like Psalms because Psalms says you can have both Jesus and a therapist. In fact, you should have both of them. They're both good for you. Yeah, we see in Psalms that even saints of God get heavy laden and weary and need help. You don't believe me? Read Psalms. Read all of them. Will you see David's emotion both of joy and of sorrow, of anger? Psalm 137, I love, which is full of anger. Psalms are about laying all of our emotions and our worship to God. Uh, You know, and that's so important because we all struggle with it. I mean, one of the reasons why I I told you, write down when God's used you early on, because I'm going to be honest with you guys and gals, Listen, um, these last few years, there were times I prayed like David, Lord, if you will open another door, I will walk through it. (laughs) If you will let me go from my calling, I will let you have it. And every time I prayed that, God sent me an affirmation of my calling to the point it got irritating. (laughs) I'm like, God, I'm tired, I'm complaining. If you'll let me go, I will go. And every daggum time, God affirmed me. I'm like, stop it. Yeah, we have to name our hurts to God, y'all. The Psalms are full of worship, but are full of hurt at times. Job tells us all suffer. Psalms is full of worship and honesty. Proverbs, good ethics for the living of life, y'all. Louis, Dr. Frank Pollard who many of y'all may remember used to be a longtime pastor of First Baptist Jackson. To, to, for my money, the best preacher I've ever heard in my entire life was Frank Pollard. Doctor Pollard said you should read three Psalms and one Proverbs a day. That's a good. That's a good living. For, that's a good rule for life. Proverbs show us the ethical living of life. Then we have. Then we have Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books in the entire Bible, where the, Solomon has everything, y'all. He has everything you can want, everything a man could ever want. He has it all, power, wealth, privilege, everything. And he has all this. And in the end, he says, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. All that matters is remembering the Lord. And the Song of Songs, which shows the importance of love, you know, it's a book of love. It's a, and so we need that in our life. So these the, the histories recount to us the history of the covenant community. How God worked, how God moved in them as they conquered, but then how God stayed with them as they failed, and how their actions had consequences. The history we read the history as we are reading a historical book. They are meant to be read in that manner. It is a retelling of the histories, but the wisdom literature. They, they, it, it's. Poetic in some ways, it's powerful. It's an experience. It's emotion. It's to be read deeper. The Psalms, are like God is God, is a stronghold. God's a mighty fortress. God's not literally these things. These are poetic things speaking of God. The Book of Job just lays out suffering and the anguish and the agony that comes with suffering and how God is present in the midst of that. Ecclesiastes shows us the brokenness that comes from too much. <laughs> When, be careful if you get, you know, be careful praying for that pony. Because you might not really need that pony. And if you think that pony is going to make you happy, it's not. That new house is not going to make you happy, y'all. That new job is not going to make you happy. That new car is not going to make you happy. It may give you a couple moments of excitement. But vanity, vanity, it's all Vanity. So these these books show us the lived experience of the covenant community, both in its history and then in its experience. So what do these books teach us? I think they teach us a lot of stuff, but three main things. First, the history show us that God is active in our lives and God is active in history. We see in the historical books that God is building. Remember, last week I said the covenant community's purpose was to be the people for whom Jesus would come. So we see that. We see in David, we see the Old Testament, in many ways the Old Testament icon who Christ will be. We see that God is actively moving in the Jewish people. We see that God is active in their history and that God is active in their life. We do not serve a God who is foreign to us. We do not serve a God who is removed from us. We serve a God who's in the midst of our life with us. God is a God who is active in human history and God is a God who is active in our life. God is at work in our life. God is at work in the daily living of our life. God is not far. God is near. God is active in human history and God is active in our life. Now, we might not always sense it at the time. I heard a wise man once say, life is lived moving forward, but understood looking backwards. We might not understand how God was at work till after we've lived through it. But the history show us that God is active in human history. And God is at work in all of history and all of life. So, frankly, y'all, for those of us who are Christian, that should give us great hope. We've read the back of the book. We know how the story ends. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be worried. We don't have to be angry. We don't have to live as the world lives or think as the world thinks or operate under their pressures. But we know how the story ends. The histories show us that God is active in human history. He is not removed from us, but he is in the midst with us. So we can live with confidence and with hope and with passion and with trust because God is at work in all things. He was at work in Joshua, Judges, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. He was at work in all of this to bring about his purpose, his plan, and for his glory. God is a God active in human history. God is a God active in our life. He was working to form the covenant community. He was working to shape the covenant community. He was working for the purpose of the covenant community. God is at work. The histories show us God's involvement in history. We can trust the Psalms show us, and the Psalms and Proverbs, the wisdom show us that our worship, Psalms, must be connected to our ethics. Proverbs. Our ethics and our worship are not disconnected, but they are integrated together because that's what holiness looks like. Holiness looks like a life of worship to God, but a life of ethics towards God and others and other people. That how our worship on Sunday must affect how I live. On Tuesday, our worship of God, the the language and worship of Psalms, is intricately connected to our ethics as seen in Proverbs. These two things are not far from each other, but they are together. And how I worship God, how I love God, how I serve God, must be seen in how I love my neighbor how I treat my neighbor, how I care for my neighbor. It is not enough for me to mouth the words of worship on Sunday morning unless my life is living out the ethics of worship on Tuesday afternoon. These two things are tied together. They are not separate. They are together. We see from the histories, history that God is active in human history. We see from the wisdom from Psalms and from Proverbs, as well as from Job, that our worship is T- deeply tied to our ethics. The two are not separate. The two are bound together. But y'all, we see in Ecclesiastes, something a book that I love so much, that nothing matters but God, y'all. That moment we were talking about earlier where you felt, God, the moment you're going to go home and write about this afternoon, what compared to that, y'all? What compares to that? What is as good, y'all, seriously, what is as good in your life as that moment when you experience God's goodness and God's love and God's grace? Y'all, nothing measures up to that. Nothing. In Ecclesiastes, he has it all. He has everything. He has everything a person can want Power and wealth and privilege and fame and fortune and everything, everything one could ever desire. He has it all. He has everything you could ever dream and live for. And what does he say in the end? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. He who dies with the most toys still dies. You can't take it with you. So, why are we living for the temporary? See, as Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. We are like children making mud pies in the street when we cannot imagine what a vacation at the beach would be like. We spend all of our life on these temporary things that are gone, like that. Instead of spending our time, our money, and our energy on that which is eternal. The stuff of this world's fleeting. Story told about an old boy who dies, and his last wish is for his kids to put all his gold in his coffin, because he's going to take it to heaven with him. So the kids put all the gold that he has in his coffin when he dies. He wakes up in heaven, and he has all his gold with him. So he goes to Peter, at the gate, and says, "Okay, you know, he's checking in." And Peter says, okay, glad you made it. You know, we knew you'd be here this day and such and such. said, but Peter said, I have one question for you. I said, sure. What's that? I said, what's you going to do with all that asphalt? I mean, the streets of the, uh, in the when we get to Revelation, we're going to talk about this. Revelation says the streets are made of gold. What that means is the very thing we walk on in heaven, you know, the junk that we, that we check our dirt on, the most valuable thing upon the earth. Is what we walk on in heaven. We don't live for this world, y'all. And if our hope is in the stuff of this world and not the stuff of heaven, then it's a house made of sand, y'all. Ecclesiastes tells us that. So we learn from this section that God is active in human history, that our worship must be connected to our ethics. And we learn, we learn that all that truly matters in life is that walk with God. Holly and I are having a conversation recently I'm talking about cars. And um, there's one thing I feel very strongly about. I never want war- as, uh, seats with heat warmers in them, like heated seats. I never want heated seats. And let me tell you Why? Once I've had it, I can't go back, y'all. Once I've experienced that, once my rear has sat in a warm seat like that, y'all, I can't go back to my cloth seats at that point. I mean, I, I, once I've tasted it, I, I, can't ha- not, I can't not have it. It's like when I was preaching outside of Philadelphia. I was afraid to get high-speed Internet access back in the day because I thought, once I get DSL, I can't go back. I, I, I can't go back to dial-up. i got to have it. Once I get heated seats, I can't go back to not heated seats. I'm not going to get them because I'm afraid I'll lose it. I just can't. I don't want to live like that. I got to have it. Once we've tasted God's goodness, what can compare to that? Y'all, once we've tasted and experienced the goodness of God, how can we walk away from it? How can we desire anything but that? Again. Once we've truly tasted God's goodness and experienced his grace, what can compare to that? Nothing. We have seen the power of the covenant and the people formed by the covenant community. We've seen the act, the action of God in their life. We've seen the glory of worship. Y'all. May we be shaped by this covenant of God ourselves. And may we understand that nothing, nothing, nothing in all creation can satisfy us like the goodness of God. Let's pray.